Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a different pipeline debate in B.C. In this one, B.C.'s premier is on the side of pipeline development. Also, a conversation about conversations. We talk street epistemology with Anthony Magnabosco. Plus, the Degrassi tour rolls into Calgary this weekend. A look back at how this Canadian show became so iconic as we chat with Joey Jeremiah himself, Pat Mastrioan. Let's play a game of guess which politician said this. Speaking of a pipeline project, quote, the courts have confirmed that this project can proceed and it will proceed. The rule of law must prevail. Now, by mentioning that it was about a pipeline, that's meant to be a hint. But it's also probably throwing you off because the last person you might guess would be B.C. Premier John Horgan. But that was, in fact, exactly what B.C. Premier John Horgan said this week about the coastal gas link pipeline. Now, this is a key component of the LNG Canada project, this $40 billion project in B.C. Obviously, you got to get the natural gas to that project, hence the coastal gas link pipeline. Now, I mean, in a way, this is unique, obviously, that we have federal support for this project, B.C. support for this project. Alberta is certainly behind this project. Uh, The elected ban councils along this route are supportive of this pipeline and have agreements in place uh, with the company uh, to partner on this. But uh, the hereditary chiefs within the Wet'suwet'en First Nation Uh, are vehemently opposed to this project. And so it is not without controversy. And it puts John Horgan in a bit of an awkward position because on other projects, Trans Mountain, obviously, uh, he's very much on the other side of this equation. So it's interesting to see how uh, he now finds himself in a position that Alberta's, well, current and former premier found themselves in, and the prime minister as well. So it does put John Horgan in a bit of a, a unique position here. But is he right when he says it will proceed? Anyway, joining us uh, for the latest, very pleased to welcome to the program, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, uh, more globalnews.ca slash BC. Keith, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Always great to be here, Rob. Uh, So like I say, this uh, does find uh, John Horgan in kind of a unique position as far as pipeline debates go. But um, he is very, very supportive of this project, isn't he? came out pretty strong yesterday, his first news conference in the new year, meeting with Frescari, first questions right off the bat, and that, that issue dominated pretty well the entire proceeding was, what are you going to do about this pipeline uh, potential blockade? He's adamant the, the project must uh, go ahead. He, he also said the rule of law must be followed. A court uh, has ruled, a BC Supreme Court judge has ruled twice that uh, granting an injunction to stop protesters from blockading this. Where it's also interesting, Rob, is there's a bit of a almost a contradiction here. On the one hand, John Horgan's government is very supportive of First Nations' rights to the point of enshrining into law what's called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which some people, well, which does include the requirement uh, for First Nations to give what's called their free, prior, and informed consent before projects can go ahead. 
Some people interpret that as a veto. Uh, John Horgan says that's not a veto, but certainly the hereditary chiefs and their supporters who are opposed to this project are using the argument that they have a veto as a result of UNDRIP, and that's one reason why they're, they're so intransigent. Both sides are very intransigent here, and uh, a happy outcome is not predicted by anyone. So it's, uh, it's a, again, a fascinating glimpse into First Nations politics as well, because as you mentioned, all the elected uh, band councils along the pipeline route have signed off on this project uh, to the point of getting more than $300 million in economic benefits agreements. Uh, the number of these vans are severely impoverished. Wet'suwet'en, which is where the hereditary chiefs are, also is split because five First Nations within that First Nations have signed agreements with the company for economic benefits, and three hereditary chiefs, who are all women, also support the project. So you've only got five hereditary chiefs who are unelected who oppose it, and uh, along with their environmental activist allies, and that's what's holding this thing up. Yeah, it's interesting. So I understand that uh, John Horgan and Justin Trudeau spoke about this project mm-hmm. yesterday. What, what did the Premier uh, have to say about that conversation? Yeah, they had an hour-long uh, uh, video conference uh, meeting. They were supposed to meet in Victoria, but weather got in the way and nobody could fly here. Uh, they covered a whole bunch of topics, but this was one. And, and Trudeau, we interviewed him on Global yesterday. Donna Friesen uh, talked to him about it. He says he's basically leaving this in the province's hands. It's a provincial pipeline. It was it passed provincial approval, uh, but the federal government does support it, but he says that uh, he's open to continuing dialogue with First Nations, but he seemed to reject the call from First Nations, the, the hereditary chiefs, for what they call a government-to-government-to-government conversation. Uh, in that, com- in that uh, conversation with the Prime Minister, Horgan, uh, the two of them agreed that this is a provincial jurisdiction uh, dispute, and it's going to be up to B.C. To, to figure a way to solve this thing. Now, is is it BC's position then that this is Ottawa's problem to deal with, or how much of this, uh, you know, in terms of the the RCMP and what they do or don't do, how much of this rests with the premier and his government? Well, he's not he's not going to be telling the RCMP what to do. He says the RCMP, you know, have a sort of a protocol to follow when when it comes to enforcing court injunctions. So, but it is a federal police agency, so that's the federal government's role, I suppose. Uh, he's hoping that uh, you know cooler heads prevail and that perhaps the hereditary chiefs listen to other First Nations wanting this um, this thing to go ahead. But I think standing back, uh, it seems obvious we're going to have a confrontation up there. I think the police are going to move in. There will be arrests. There were 14 people arrested last year at the same place. This thing's been festering for two or three years now. Uh, the same people have been locked into this protest camp. The RCMP discovered uh, giant uh, trees felled along the pipeline route to disrupt uh, workers. They also uncovered uh, big cans of gasoline under a tarp for who knows why that was there. But certainly... Uh, it's pretty tense up there. We've had a confrontation in the past, and the expectation is we're going to have another one, no matter what the Premier has to say about this. John Horgan can talk tough all he wants, but he doesn't really have the power to do much. It's in the hands of the RCMP when it comes to enforcing that injunction. Right, and we learned yesterday that uh, there is one key road up there that um, leads to, to one of the work sites. So the RCMP uh, that basically blocked this road, so it seems like they're they're uh, sort of establishing their, their presence there. Oh, yeah, and they've got a strategy of how to work this out. Um, it's a very remote area. Uh, we're talking way in the bush, away from civilization. There has pro- been a protest camp there for, as I say, a couple of years now. Uh, but there's all ways into this area that you know, isn't just about a road. If you're prepared to do the hike, uh, you can cut through dense forest. And the RCMP, though, have got a strategy to contain the protest, to contain the blockade, and to remove any protesters. 
countries, but it's not necessarily foolproof because, as I say, this is a vast area and it's it's almost virgin wilderness, and it's it's very hard to police such a large area to ensure absolutely nothing goes wrong. But uh, they've got a strategy in place. We're going to see it unfold in the coming days. You know, it is interesting, as we talked about at the outset, to, to have this kind of at least political unanimity on, on a project like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly I think there, there are those who support Trans Mountain who find, uh, you know, there's some, maybe some, some schadenfreude in, in John Horgan's woes on this. And I know there are those on, on the left, perhaps even the B.C. Green Party, his, his partners in governing at the moment, uh, who aren't as enthusiastic about this, this coastal gas link project. So I think both on both sides, there, there's some noting of some of the hypocrisy on John Horgan's uh, part. How, how does he reconcile his very vehement opposition to Trans Mountain and his very vocal support for this? Well, he distinguishes between what's in both pipelines. Uh, his concern, his stated concern, is not so much the, the TMX pipeline, it's what's in the pipeline and what happens to it when it leaves the pipeline. So I'm talking about bitumen uh, and heavy oil, and uh, the focus from the NDP government has been more about who controls what's in that pipeline and what happens about the tankers that ply the waters of B.C. So there's two issues on the TMX pipeline. One is the pipeline and what's in it. The other one is the tankers. Mm-hmm. And that's where Horrigan has sort of carved out his position. He's more concerned about what goes into the pipeline and what comes out into the tankers and the danger of an oil spill. This pipeline up north, the coastal gasoline pipeline, is a natural gas pipeline, which if there's a spill, it just sort of, you know, dissipates into the atmosphere. There's not a lot of uh, downside negativity attached to a spill or a rupture in a natural gas pipeline. It's also that LNG Canada project, that $40 billion one you mentioned, that's, that's the cornerstone of the NDP's economic strategy. It needs that project to go ahead, and that's why that pipeline must go ahead. It's, it's not particularly in, enamored of the TMX pipeline, but I have to tell you, Rob, you don't hear about the TMX pipeline much anymore out here. Right? It's just dropped off the radar screen. Maybe it'll, it'll pop up again in the summer when, you know, the long, hot summer occurs and you see protests again. But construction of the thing is continuing. There's no protest associated with it. The NDP government here in B.C. doesn't even talk about the TMX pipeline anymore. Their opposition has been whittled down to a rather... Um, Hail Mary pass in the courts where they're trying to establish that they've got jurisdiction over what's in that pipeline and not Alberta. And very few people give them any chance of succeeding in that court case. So the opposition is frittered to almost nothing from a government's point of view, and but he's gone all in on the natural gas pipeline up north. And there is some, you know, if you want to call it hypocrisy or at least inconsistency, it's there. But I think it also speaks where I've always thought about John Horgan is that at the end of the day, he comes from an energy background. He's in favor of pipelines. He's not really his big opponent people think. All right. Well, interesting days ahead, Keith. Appreciate the update here today. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Anytime. Take care. All right. You too. Keith Baldry, BC uh, Legislative Bureau Chief with Global BC, and uh, some thoughts on what John Horgan had to say yesterday and how much that's going to matter on the ground uh, up where this uh, coastal gasoline project is being built. This is key to this LNG Canada project, a $40 billion project. This is massive. So not everybody's on board with the pipeline. Okay. We don't need unanimous support for pipelines to go ahead, but it seems as though some of those who are opposed think that we do, or at least that their approval is necessary. The courts have said uh, so far that no, it's not. Nobody gets a veto. Nobody should get a veto. Just because you think you deserve a veto doesn't mean you do. It doesn't mean you get one. And again, and it's so important to note, uh, that the elected chief and band council of the Wet'suwet'en support this project. All of the elected band councils along the route of this project support it. So there are some hereditary chiefs and others who do not. Okay. 
So not everybody's in agreement. But uh, overwhelmingly, there is First Nation support for this project. There is federal support for this project. The B.C. government supports this project. The Alberta government supports this project. Uh, there's no reason at all, no reason that this should not go ahead. 70 CHQR. Well, the risk of giving our next guest, um, shall we say, cold feet, I will note that at the moment in San Antonio, Texas, it is 24 degrees Celsius, as in 24 degrees above zero Celsius. Very pleasant day in San Antonio. I think they might get some rain this week. Uh, And yet our next guest is voluntarily (laughs) making his way here to Calgary this week. For a couple of events, uh, Thursday and Friday at Mount Royal University, uh, sponsored by the Rational Space Network at Mount Royal University. And uh, it's a conversation about, well, conversations. Uh, on Thursday, the event's 7 o'clock Thursday night, How Can We Believe What Is True? The Jenkins Theater at Mount Royal University. And then on Friday, uh, 2 o'clock at the Ideas Lounge, Why Do You Believe in God? Uh, so... Joining us to talk more about these two events and his whole approach to productive conversations. Anthony Magnabosco joins us, founding executive director of Street Epistemology International. Anthony, great to talk to you here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm really impressed that you pronounced epistemology correct. It's a kind of a difficult word for a lot of people. Well, I, 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 you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. So I, I um, you know, I, I stuck <laughs> the landing. So I appreciate that. I'm really wondering if you practiced it or not. And yes, it is. It is very pleasant here. And I'm in a way, I'm, a, I'm kind of dreading the cold weather that it, that is about to befall me when I arrive in Calgary, Alberta tomorrow. Well, not to panic you, but it's probably like nothing you've ever experienced in your life. Just imagine okay. the coldest you can imagine, that <laughs> double or triple. That it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite something here this week, but I guess it'll make for a good story. Well, I'm willing to brave it because I'm excited to talk about this thing called street epistemology. A lot of people yeah. haven't heard of it yet, and you did a great job of setting it up. I'm giving a talk tomorrow, or excuse me, I'm giving a talk on Thursday, and then on Friday I'm giving a workshop to teach people how to use this approach of engaging with people on challenging topics without shutting them down, actually opening them up and making more progress in the end. Right, and I, I find this fascinating because, I mean, I think to some extent it's it's what I do or try to do uh, on this program and in speaking hmm. with various guests or speaking with listeners who, who phone in and trying to discuss issues and present different perspectives. Let, let's get into to what this is or how you approach it. What is uh, street epistemology? Uh, see, there you go, epistemology. <laughs> there we go. Well, it, it's street epistemology is, is very counterintuitive. Normally, we tend to think that, well, I, if I engage with somebody who I disagree with or they're clearly mistaken on this issue, all I have to do is give them a link to an article or point out exactly where they're wrong and they'll accept this evidence and change their mind. And if anyone has ever tried that, you probably realize that it doesn't often work that way. Sometimes people dig down even deeper. They they ignore your evidence sometimes even, or maybe even entrench themselves further into the belief. So this is an approach that recognizes this problem. And rather than assuming that somebody is ready for evidence, you engage in a conversation with them where you're largely asking questions to have them explain how they arrived at their conclusion. And that one little shift of Let's not be antagonistic here. Let's be a partner and try to figure out how you concluded that this is really true. When you embark on that approach, it tends to open a person up more and you oftentimes tend to figure out if they built this belief on a reliable footing. 
it, but I mean, obviously, then I mean, you know, the, and and the conversations you have are are often about specific things, or you you're using this technique in a specific way. But it's not it's not specific mm-hmm. to any one belief. It's not specific to any one topic. Very well said. Yes, uh, there. When this first started, it was presented as a tool for people to talk about God beliefs, and very effective at that. But pre- the people who started using this approach realized fairly quickly that. We can use it for other claims. You don't just have to use it on supernatural claims. So if somebody thinks that they've seen a ghost maybe or that there's aliens on other planets or that the weather really will be minus 28 degrees tomorrow Celsius in Calgary, you can actually work with the person to figure out how they arrived at their conclusion. So it's a, it's a very versatile tool. And it's extremely effective in having a person take another look at their views and sometimes even back off of their confidence. Many, many times we run into people who are so sure that they have it figured out. And it's kind of amazing when you watch video examples. I like to record my examples and put them on my YouTube channel. And other people do this too. But it's fascinating to watch people who were so sure five minutes ago that what they thought was true. And now they're kind of scratching their heads. Hmm, I'm not exactly sure that's a really good reason or... Maybe the way that I can verify that reason isn't the, really the best way to go about doing it. Maybe I need to take another look at this belief. Mm-hmm. And there's value in that. There's value in taking another look at our views, especially if we are tied to them when they affect us as a person. There's a, a true value in that. Yeah. It is interesting to watch some of your videos. And, and I am quite fascinated at, at, at people's willingness uh, to engage with you and, and willing to have a conversation. Because, I mean, you, it's you're amazing. not... You're not, you're not going after people. You, you are very respectful, and, and it's really conversational, so it's interesting to watch. Um, mm. But, I mean, people are, are there, there's a willingness, it seems, to you know, have conversations and, and talk about things. And, and you know, when people have deeply held beliefs, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're willing to, to defend them. When I first started doing this, I was a little, well, it was a little nerve-wracking going out and asking people to chat with you for five minutes about a deeply held belief. But what I found is what you just outlined there. Many people like to do it. They don't often have a chance to talk about these things with their close family and friends. And sometimes running to a stranger who's saying, would you mind if we explored a deeply held belief with you? And I'll be as respectful and friendly as possible. We'll try to keep it really brief. And then you can ask me questions in return. A lot of people don't get that opportunity. And what I found is that people enjoy it. They love it. They come back for more. They even tell their friends that I'm out there doing this. <laughs> and then people will come up to me to to have me use street epistemology on their belief. It's pretty cool. What about the idea of, of using it on one's own beliefs, right? Because maybe we should all avoid getting too comfortable in in what we believe or hold to be true it's essential you ha- you have to i think well if you if you want to live an examined life you have to take a look at your beliefs periodically to see did i use a, a good method for getting there and did i build this on a solid foundation the beliefs that we hold tend to motivate us to behave we act out on them because we think that they're true and these behaviors affect other people. So it's it's in our best interest and in the best interest of society, I think, to periodically take a look at our beliefs and see, are we justified in being so sure that they're true? Right. And so what, what has been the effects on you uh, of engaging mm. in this? I mean, profound, has it changed you? Prof- profoundly, profoundly, Rob. In, in fact, it's kind of fun. it's kind of sad in a way. I've, I've damaged relationships with family members that I've been hoping to repair. And I just discovered within the last two weeks that one of them is large, largely irreparable, I think, because 
I used a very aggressive in your face confrontational approach. And then I started learning this method, but I will never go back. I can't imagine ever going back to an aggressive argumentative approach after learning this tool because I can see the profound effect that it has on the person that I'm questioning and myself. I've, I've become much more comfortable in uncertainty. And a lot of people I think have difficulty saying that maybe we've been trained maybe as kids or something to, to be, we have to be sure that we're, that we have the right answer and you can't express any doubt. Well, there, there's a certain amount of freedom in saying, I'm not really sure how that works. Maybe we can investigate it together. So it has absolutely changed me as a person and how I interact with other people, my friends, my family, strangers even. Right. And for, for, you know, whether it's religion or politics, there's kind of a, you know, there's a community or tribal aspect to it where it's not just that you know, I believe in, in this God or I believe in this political ideology. It's that uh, the people I'm surrounded with do, the, you know, the people I, I spend every day talking to do that. It's not just about, you know, the fear of, of questioning one's beliefs. It's kind of that, that whole community that, you know, people are, are I think, fearful of, of losing. And it's a it's a valid fear because if you admit to yourself that I don't have a good reason for thinking that this this core outlook of how I interact with the world might be unjustifiable, you very well could lose relationships with the family and friends and the lo- the loved ones in your life. It it happens on a daily basis. There are people who are struggling with it all the time, so there is a cost to it. However, there are people who are willing to pay the cost. And there are others who have paid that cost and have started other communities where they say, I'm going to just hang out here on I don't know. I, I, cannot honest, I can't be honest with myself and say that I'm sure that that's true because I don't have a good reason for it. And there are other people who are on that, they're on that boat with you, so to speak. So uh, while it might appear to be a lonely journey, it's not because there are other people who have gone through it. All right, so we mentioned the two events. Uh, it's um, a lecture coming up Thursday night, a workshop on Friday. So a uh, little different uh, approach with each one. What what can people uh, look forward to this week? Well, let's see. On Thursday, yes, I'll be giving a talk. It's two hours, and the first hour will be strictly a presentation of this approach and the troubles that people have when we start talking about what the word truth means. Uh, it's a very complicated word that needs to be unpacked. And oftentimes you have to unpack it before you get to a claim. But then I'll also show some video examples of me using street epistemology. I think nothing sells this. It, this might be hard for your viewers to understand what the heck we're talking about. But if you watch a few video examples, like it sounds like you have, that's when it kind of dawns on you like, oh, I see what he's doing now. So on Thursday, I'm going to present this approach of street epistemology. And then on Friday, for those that return, and I hope you come back for that as well, I'll teach you how to do this. And I'll not only teach you, we'll do a role play session where you can use it with somebody else in the group. You can pretend to have a belief that you used to have, or you can even surface a claim that you want to have someone sort of kick the tires on. And I think it's going to be really fun. All right. Well, uh, that's happening this week at uh, Mount Royal University. It's uh, Rational Space Network at Mount Royal uh, that's putting on these events, and uh, I believe still uh, space available for both. Uh, much more at your website, anthonymagnabosco.com. You're on YouTube as well. Folks can uh, watch these videos for themselves. Uh, Anthony, uh, you know, bundle up and uh, enjoy your time here in Calgary, and appreciate <laughs> making some time for us here today. I plan on it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Really All enjoyed right. it. Likewise. Appreciate it. There you go. Anthony Magnabosco. He is uh, executive director, founding director of Street Epistemology International. So the two events at Mount Royal this week, Thursday night and Friday afternoon.
so 80s uh, and a little hokey, too, which I, I guess kind of sums up uh, Degrassi. Now, as mentioned, I mean, it started with uh, a kid's show, Kids uh, Degrassi Street. But by the mid to late 80s, it, it became something else. It was Degrassi Junior High and then Degrassi High. Um, you know, with no shortage of melodrama, I guess, but but to create something that was Canadian that would at least resonate with kids. And it was interesting because, you know, I'm right smack in that, that demographic. I was in junior high when Degrassi Junior High first aired. So I, I definitely remember this. I remember all the characters and all the storylines. Uh, it was weird because, you know, I mean... <laughs> When it comes to CanCon and Canadian content and the idea, let's make a Canadian show, it doesn't always work. Uh, but, but this one did. Uh, it was successful enough that it spawned, as mentioned, to Grassy High. Uh, then a TV movie in 92 called Schools Out, which was a little controversial. We'll talk about that. Uh, and then, you know, with all the nostalgia that started to build up, uh, the Degrassi, the next generation, came along, and um, you know one of the cast members, a young man named Aubrey Drake, went on to some degree of stardom following that. But it, it certainly, I think, has become iconic in a lot of ways. Uh, the Degrassi tour is uh, certainly, I, I think, a way for, for people to indulge in, in that nostalgia. It rolls into Calgary this weekend. That aforementioned uh, made-for-TV movie School's Out is going to be screening Saturday at the Globe Cinema. Uh, 7 o'clock is general admission. There is a VIP event. Uh, starts at 5 o'clock at the Globe Cinema on Saturday. Uh, but there will be a Q&A after. Your opportunity uh, to meet, to greet, to hear from a couple of the stars of Degrassi. You might remember the characters Joey and Caitlin. Well, they will be there. Pat Mastroianni played the role of Joey Jeremiah. On Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High, also returned for Degrassi The Next Generation. He'll be here in town on Saturday for this event at the Globe Cinema. More details at DegrassiTour.com. Pat, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I hope you guys are keeping warm out there. <laughs> We're doing our best, man, let me tell you. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the, the, the tour, DegrassiTour.com, by the way, for all, all the details and everything going on, including, of course, here in Calgary uh, on Saturday. But, I mean, it just speaks to, I think, what a, what a cultural phenomenon this, this show became. Well, you know what, Rob? We grew up in the 80s and 90s, and we didn't have social media. We didn't have ways of accessing and touching and reaching out to, to fans and vice versa. Um, once in a while, we would get the odd fan mail back in the days. But um, ever since the advent of, of social media, we've been able to not only connect, but now reach out to these folks. And uh, I'm in the business of nostalgia. I, I book celebrity personalities for appearances at comic conventions all over the world. And so I've incorporated that in my love for Degrassi and the love that I have for the, the people that grew up watching it. And for allowing us to be part of this Canadian pop culture world uh, for the past three decades. Yeah, it was interesting for me because I, I was in junior high when Degrassi Junior High premiered. So it, it was interesting because there weren't a lot of shows that were kind of aimed at us or about us, right? And I mean, you know, there, there were American shows like Saved by the Bell and then later on, you know, 90210. But there was something different, almost kind of real, even though there was some melodrama, but certainly something real about, about Degrassi. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were melodrama at its best, but I think we represented uh, a group of people watching that were middle class, um, multicultural, uh, and we tried to speak their language. And I think we spoke honestly to our audience and we weren't trying to say, you know, here's your lesson of the week. But, you know, every character 
that had a heavy topic, there was always a consequence for their actions. And um, I, I think people respected that and, and appreciated that honesty that we had. Right. And I think you were you would have been around maybe high school age, but you were you were a kid basically doing this show. You all were right. Which oh, is yeah, what, yeah. What we made were definitely so the age that we were playing, maybe off by a, a year yeah. or two at most. But, um, you know, for us, it was also a learning experience as we were doing the show, because I, I couldn't speak about HIV or AIDS back in the 80s. I knew nothing about, you know, what was happening. And, and you know, the show decided to tackle that issue head on yeah. uh, when no one else was talking about it. So, you know, that's just one example uh, of where I think the show kind of stepped up when it needed to, and it continued on with every version uh, or every generation of the series since. How did, it, how did it come about for you? I mean, what, what were you doing at the time? Obviously, you were, were doing some acting, but how, how did this role come about for you? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I just thought I was at the right place at the right time. They were sending flyers out to local high schools in Toronto uh, back then looking for, you know, fresh faces, people with no experience. Uh, and, and you just basically submitted yourself uh, via mail with it with a headshot uh, or any kind of photo that you had available at the time. And they brought me in with about 500 other kids. And I was one of the first people to ever audition for the character of Joy <laughs> Jeremiah. And then through multiple weeks of workshops and, um, you know, kind of seeing who worked well with whom. Um, you know, we, we narrowed it down to about 20 cast members and then we just went from there and it was really learning on the job. I mean, I look at that first season and I just kind of go, oh man, what was I thinking? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think it was because we weren't professionals. We weren't, you know, polished actors that people saw the nuances of our performances and, and just the honesty of it all. I mean, I guess it's a job. I mean, I had a job in high school, worked at a, at a KFC, but this is a different kind of job, right? And we always hear stories about child actors and, and how, you know, can, it can mess them up doing this kind of work. But what, I don't know. I mean, what was it like for you guys doing this? Oh, it was, it was, there was no star system on our show. Right. <laughs> we were lugging cables and, and uh, working in the kitchen to feed the cast and crew. I mean, it was really humbling, and it was kind of like guerrilla filmmaking back then. Uh, not like today's version of Degrassi, The Next Generation, where everybody had their own, you know, room, and their, you know, they had makeup, and they had wardrobe from actual retail stores where ours were, you know, from the <laughs> Salvation Army. Um, you know, it was very honest and very humbling, and... and we walked away, you know, from that experience kind of like, um, you know, thinking, oh, this is must, must be how the industry is like. Yeah. <laughs> this shock and awe <laughs> to this experience uh, after Degrassi where it was a completely different world. So, you know, Degrassi was its own unique um, experience. And we talked about that this summer when I hosted a two-day event called Degrassi Palooza here in Toronto where I reunited 25 of the cast and crew and 300 fans from around the world came to this event and it was just a wonderful love fest because there were a lot of people out there that just wanted to reconnect. For them, this was their high school reunion and I'm kind of trying to replicate that by hitting cities across the country, uh, Calgary being being one that I've been trying to get to for many years um, and, and Concert Works is a company uh, based out of Edmonton that has helped us get to Calgary and uh, you know, the Globe Cinema opened their doors to us, and you know, we're just going to try to you know make everybody feel welcome, make everybody feel like this is a, a high school reunion, and also have some fun. We've got some great stories to tell. Stacy and I, you know, we've been working together for thirty years. We're very comfortable on stage together, and people walk away with an amazing experience. Now, the the film School's Out that aired uh, on uh, television in nineteen ninety two. It, it was, I mean, it was controversial, wasn't it? 
It was a big deal. <laughs> I don't think the fans of Degrassi <laughs> were expecting it. Uh, we definitely continued to try to break some some boundaries there, especially with the uh, f bomb uh, that took place <laughs> in the movie, and also the fact that many characters they, the show didn't wrap up in a nice, neat right. little bow. Um, people were, I think, when that movie ended, just kind of their jaws dropped and and was like, "What the heck did I just watch?" So I think to revisit that movie thirty years later, and uh, it, it still holds up, and I, I think it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of uh, you know, 80s references, which is awesome. Um, and I think we're all at that nostalgia age right now where we're looking back to a simpler time. I, I say this often in public that, you know, the 80s and 90s were the last of an analog generation. You know, we'll never have a world that we live in l- quite like that ever again. And, um, you know, we also talk about how difficult it must be to be a teenager today. The world that they live in is nothing like the world we grew up in. Yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, I got teenagers of my own, and it's yeah, it's remarkable that you know, in some ways they got a good, but in some ways it's like, man, I would not want to be a teenager today. So, no, yeah, no not I. <laughs> it's interesting though because I mean, younger kids know Degrassi, right? I mean, obviously you were part of the, of the next generation. I, I, I mean, clearly Drake was part of the next generation. I think that's a big reason why so many young people today are familiar with the the franchise. Uh, Kevin Smith, he's been a big reason why uh, you know so many people are aware of it. So, you know, it's not just us uh, Gen Xers, you know, us uh, folks in, in our forties or fifties that that resonate. I mean, it's it's young people today. They know Degrassi too. Oh, absolutely, because I think it speaks to every generation. And, and, you know, the topics that we discussed back in the 80s and 90s are still prevalent today. And, and, and kids are, are kids, no matter what generation or no matter where they're from. Um, you know, they can relate to it. Yeah, the show is a little bit dated, but I, I think that parents putting that on today for their kids, um, they, they could absolutely pick up some, some interesting timbits from, from our show, even though it's 30 years old. Um, this is just a celebration, I think, that, you know, for us to come out and, and meet and greet with our fans, uh, you know, 30 years later and to sign that autograph or take that photo op with them and tell, tell them our stories. Um, you know, it also reminds us of our youth. And, and I think Stacey and I represent what it was like uh, being a, a teenager uh, in Canada. And, uh, you know, for us, it's a, it's a treat to come out and, and see all of you guys. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think we're almost sold out, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, you can go online and check and see if there's any tickets available. But for us, it, it's been a, a dream to be a part of this series. And now we have the opportunity to say thank you. Uh, all right, so it's Saturday night. So uh, general admission is at 7 o'clock for the screening of the film. But there is uh, a VIP uh, session that, that's going to get underway a little bit earlier. So for folks who really want the full Degrassi experience, I think there's still some, some tickets available for that, too. Absolutely, because, you know, sometimes people just want a few extra moments. They want to get that autograph. They want to get that selfie. Um, so we provide that opportunity with a little bit of a pre-show experience. Um, and then after the screening, there's an awesome, you know, uh, Q&A that takes place. Uh, there's definitely some comedy in that. And uh, I just want people to, to come out, you know, sp- spend a night with us, a few hours out of their normal routine. Uh, you know, you and I are probably the same. We're nesters. Uh, we stay home all the time. It's tough, tough to get out of the house, especially on a cold winter night. But uh, make that effort to come out and visit us we will make it worth your while you will have a good time and you're going to walk away with some funny stories well i think the weather's supposed to ease up a little bit by the weekend so so that'll be good news all the details at degrassi tour.com it's gonna be a fun time pat it's been great talking to you here today thanks so much for making some time for us thank you too as well i look forward to coming out there and seeing you guys cheers all right, there you go. That's uh, Pat Mastroani, of course, uh, otherwise known as joey jeremiah uh, so yeah there you go joey and caitlin uh, they'll be in town Saturday, the Degrassi Tour, Saturday night at the Globe Cinema, DegrassiTour.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. 
You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.